Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Ladies and gentlemen, we have our UFO round table assembled. It's a square table. It's got four sides. Square. That's right. We have four squares. We have Gene Steinberg, the big square, David Bietney, the bigger square, and we have such squares as Don Ecker and Jeff Ritzman making four squares. They're not squares. They're sides of a square. Did you, like, fail geometry, too? Listen, the government has failed geometry. They don't know anything about basic mathematics. They can't even add. So what difference does it make? They can add. One plus one is three trillion. What's wrong with you? You know what? You're right. Over 50 years ago, Major Donald Kehoe said, disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. He didn't use that term, but that was the meaning. Let's have disclosure. Let's have government hearings, and they will tell us the truth about UFOs. And today we have... Stephen Bassett talking about disclosure, that guy named Greer that we don't like to mention, talking about alien babies and disclosure. And nothing has happened, man. It feels so frustrating. Don Ecker, you've been through this year after year. Do you think this whole disclosure movement is a lot of nonsense? Well, first, let's get something straight. I understand that Ecker left UFO research a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're having an out-of-body experience here is what you're saying. This is definitely an out-of-body experience. All right. Yeah, there you go. No, I got to tell you, disclosure, and this is basically one of the reasons I think that uh, I became so fed up with the whole overall gestalt of UFO stuff. There's never, ever going to be disclosure unless... One of those damned things fall out of the sky into the middle of Los Angeles, New York City, or Washington, D.C., with big, bold letters on it, made in Zeta Reticuli, and they have no option but to say, yeah, they're here. That's the only way. So you're down on disclosure is what you're saying. I think it's kind of like, not to get risque, but it's like masturbation. It feels awfully good, but ultimately you get nowhere with it. That's <laughs> the comeback to that. Boom, boom. Uh, there is no comeback to that. Jeff Ritzman, what is your feeling about disclosure? Uh, well, I mean... I think it goes off a big supposition that the government even knows what the hell is going on. And I I don't think they do. I don't think they have a handle on letting anything out, provided that they don't exactly know what's going on. I think they try desperately to appear like they do, but I I don't see... A whole lot that says that they know everything about what's going on. And uh, in a lot of ways, I think they're as in the dark as we are about a great many. They may know a little bit more. They may know it to be uh, a reality, whatever that means. But uh, past that, I don't know that they know that much more. So, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, when you, when you start talking about the, the cover-up, who knows what the reasons are? When, there could be very good reasons for it. You know, so I don't know really enough about what they know, nor does anybody else for that matter, except them, uh, as to how much is is really known and, and how how wise an idea it is for it to come out as a whole. You know. Uh, well, do you think even the government knows enough to cover up anything? 
I, I mean, nobody they, trusts the government. You know, I mean, are we going to believe the government if they say something about UFOs? I mean, right now Congress has an 18 yeah. percent approval rating. Amazingly enough, Congress has a lower approval rating than W. Well, that's, so that's how exactly are we going point. to believe the government? Nobody yeah. believes the government about anything. Are they so they have a press conference tomorrow and they say, "Ladies and gentlemen, we are being visited by unknown craft. We can't say they're necessarily of extraterrestrial origin, but they're in our sky." They do not seem to present any kind of threat to our society, but we really don't understand it. Who's going to believe them? Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious by this point that if they if if they've been lying about what they know, they've been lying for a long time, and you know, eventually, if it some would come out from them, who's going to believe it? I'm not going to believe it. I can well, tell you I, that. I've got to jump in. I've got to jump in here and jumping stay. is allowed, Don. Okay. I I believe Jeff may have somewhat missed the point. I think and have believed for a very long time that the government knows incredible amounts about what's going on. I think that uh, it may go back literally to the very beginnings of the Second World War. I think that there's been a small coterie of people within the government, within the intelligence apparatus of this country, and they probably have a firmer handle on this than any other nation on the planet simply because of, number one, the status quo, the power status quo has pretty much, and I think you guys will agree with this, maybe not, but I think you will, that American intelligence, military, the complex, military intelligence complex, is probably the most powerful entity on the planet. If for no other reason, we're the only superpower around anymore. And yeah, they have a firm handle on this. Look, a number of years ago, when I was actively involved in research, I did a story on, and it was something I could unfortunately never prove, but I had a bit of experience with these guys. I did, a, did a, a, an article on the National Security Agency, NSA, on the fact that they had their intelligence gathering equipment pointed out into deep space. Now, why would they have this stuff out? Does anybody know what the NSA does? Do you guys they know? They, what they their monitor communications. Is? Their mandate is to monitor all communications coming in and out of the country. Exactly. Exactly. That's what they do. That's their right. reason for being. Now, Absolutely. what the hell would they be looking for out in deep space? Well, the only thing that makes sense to me was that they knew where to look to monitor electronic communications from somebody else. We don't have anything out there, with the exception of Pioneer 10 that's been out there for almost, well, going on 40 years now. And that thing is still occasionally beeping away, but that's it. So what else could they be looking for? Nothing. Electronic be, communications from nothing. an alien intelligence. That requires the supposition that an alien intelligence would use radio technology even vaguely akin to what we have. I don't buy that. <laughs> Our technology is what? A hundred years old? Forget it. Look, I use that same. I use that same argument with Seth Shostak on a TV show that I debated Shostak on about 15 years ago. You're right. You're right. But there's other communications, micro electronic communications, laser communications, 
who knows what, if anything, I mean, that these guys may be using. But whatever it is, for some reason, NSA has been keeping an eye on deep space. That's all I'm saying. What do you think about the conspiracy theory that we've had a second space program? Not the public program with the outmoded equipment that's about to fall apart with foam ripping off as soon as we take off. I mean the stuff that's going on in secret. We're sending stuff out there that we're not talking about. Anyone? Oh, I, I think it's conceivable. I do. I think it's conceivable. But I, I don't want to dominate here, but... Uh, you know, uh, you've got to be careful with that, too, because, you know, a few years ago, Sean David Morton, a name that... Just excuse me, I, I, I had I had a coughing fit. Excuse me. Uh, I was talking about a secret dead. space program where his father apparently had been involved in it, and astronauts could get to the moon back in like an hour. Uh-huh. Nonsense. <laughs> so now that we've heard the nonsense, what about the real secret space program? Isn't anybody going to see any of this stuff? Hello? You know, people have telescopes. Hello? Ships leaving uh, the Earth going into orbit, big craft. Hello? You'd see something. You'd see a smoke trail. Or are those those contrails? I mean, come on. This is this is where things get, in my mind, a little wacky. Look, and and let me let's go back for a moment to the whole thing about government cover up. Okay. In terms of does the government know something, I've said it on the show before, I'll say it now. Richard Dolan's book, The National Security State, proves to me, as far as I'm concerned, without, a, without any question, without any doubt, that indeed the government has a bunch of data, information that they're sitting on. Does that data or information translate to any actual understanding of what this is about? That's where I don't think that they have any real understanding of it, and I think that an admission that they don't that they have artifacts, that they have information, that they have data, and they don't know what the hell they've got, that's what they won't disclose. Bottom line. I, 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 now, is is that a possibility? I think it's a strong possibility. I would put it into the realm of probability. Is it definitively true? Well, it depends on who you talk to. And, and, of course, in this field, what ends up happening, and, and I'm curious to know what Jeff and um, Don think about this, there's a constant attempt to poison the pool. I look at, you know, you, you talk about Greer and his whole disclosure project thing where he had on a stage credible people, Captain Robert Salas, credible guy. Then you've got the Dean character, or you've got, uh, you know, Clifford Stone. Clifford Stone, nice guy. Don't believe a word he says. Nice man. You can be nice and be full of crap. It's a possibility. You know, that combination exists. So what you have is these constant attempts to take people who have credibility, put them on a stage or put them in a venue with people who don't have credibility, and just make the whole thing look ridiculous. And I think that we should look at that. And I know Jeff has some thoughts about this topic. We should look at that carefully. You talk about somebody like Greer. I mean, I don't. I, I think that's given him way too much credit. And actually, I mean, I've said for years that I don't think the UFO community, quote unquote, needs any help in acting like an idiot. There, it's full of plenty of them. And I mean, our, our experience at the X conference that to me was just, you know, that was icing on the cake to me. I mean, you you saw this guy on TV. You see how he portrays himself on TV, and you get into a a conference situation, and, and you know. I, I, I don't know how anybody could sit and listen to that and then stand up and clap. 
like they did. So, I mean, that tells me a lot about not only the, the, the speakers or the figureheads in some of this stuff, but also the people who go to listen to them. You know, if somebody's willing to give them an answer, they're willing to eat it. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues. Issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com, hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page, just put in under item Paracast Offer 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we have another one of our famous Ultimate UFO Roundtables featuring Don Ecker, retired UFO investigator who still has an awful lot to say, and Jeff Ritzman. You know, way back when, you know, we talk about the fact that these days UFO conferences feature the crazies and the scientific people or serious people mixed together one after another in a mishmash soup, as we call it in the Jewish delis back in New York City. We have a mishmash soup of people. Years ago, you had this separation. You had the contactees on one side, the scientific UFO people on the other side. Never the twain shall meet. Today, the twain has met. It has merged. It has become corned beef hash. I don't know. Is it being done just to sell tickets? The wilder stories sell the tickets, and the scientific people give them an aura of respectability, Jeff? 
I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I don't see, I still don't see the two meeting per se as, you know, if you have them booked at the same conference, then yeah, I guess the two shall meet within that conference floor. But I don't see, you know, Richard Dolan quoting, you know, uh, people we won't name, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I'm not seeing that happen. I, I don't think that the, the two have met, but I think, uh, you, you know, I, I think that, uh, yeah, the media is always going to gravitate towards the Looney Tunes, uh, and we've seen that for years and like i say you know it has there been an effort you know as far as i'm concerned has there been an effort by some unseen either government entity or some other entity to discredit this whole thing absolutely yeah absolutely i mean david and i saw it right with o'hare but is it always that you know i mean you've seen a lot of researchers come and go who are really considered uh, good folks and and providing good information, and all of a sudden they get latched onto a case that turns into a fraud, and somehow they're implicated in it. Yeah, I think uh, that stuff can happen like that. I think you can have uh, the wrong people approach you as an investigator, which I know I've had a couple of times, and I, no doubt I think that probably Don has had people approach him that he just wasn't quite sure about. Well, I, I will tell you, now, you were talking about this X conference. Now, I've got to be very upfront, very honest. I have not been following UFO happenings for the last year or so. I mean, I'll see reference to them, but I have not been following them. But during the time that I was active, my wife was the founder and original publisher of UFO magazine. So during the period of time up until almost the year 2000, we were frequently involved in a lot of these happenings. And over the years, although not as many as you might think, uh, I would occasionally be invited to give my thoughts at some of these various happenings. Now, starting out almost at the very beginning of the 90s, I garnered a reputation of being I guess you could say hard to deal with. And I'm not ashamed of that. I just found that it was tough to suffer fools gladly. <laughs> and there were a lot of fools back then. And I would be invited to some of these things. And if I thought the other speakers in the venue were full of it, I wouldn't participate. And that's just the way it was. Now, you mentioned Dolan. I met Dolan right after he he originally had his book published. As a matter of fact, I did, I think, probably the first review on mm -hmm. Dolan's book. Mm -hmm. And it is an outstanding work. Outstanding. But i got to say this. I've seen Dolan's name associated with some of these venues where there are some very questionable people. And had I have been Richard Dolan, or had I still been in contact with Dolan, I would have said, Richard, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> right. And that's something that Jeff and I have seen. I mean, we, we saw that at last year's X conference. Um, and uh, I saw the same thing uh, having attended this um, Atlantic Coast conference that happened just a few months ago. Uh, a similar kind of situation. And I'm going to give Richard the benefit of the doubt here and say that, from what I can gather, this is the guy's primary source of, uh, of revenue, selling his book, and he'll go wherever he thinks he can sell a few books. I'm not going to take him to task for that as much as I would take other people to task for it, because his book is good. He's not selling 
a piece of junk. He's selling a real piece of research. I think it's really solid. I think in every way, Richard has the right intentions and that he essentially has to go where the audiences are. This is the problem that he has to deal with. And I know that he's extremely diplomatic about it. The man is no question in my mind, a natural porn diplomat. I've seen him go on after Tom Carey, after Tom Carey hogged the stage for an hour and a half past his five-minute cutoff, going into the minutia of the incredibly anal retentive detail on Roswell to the point where it's like, we're all falling asleep. Stop it. Just stop. And he basically pushed off Dolan's time, and Dolan had to cut down his presentation rather dramatically, and he didn't make a major noise about it. The guy is a diplomat. So I think that's what you're seeing, Don, because like you, I've been called difficult to deal with as well, unlike Jeff, who's a pussycat. You ask any of my editors in the days I was writing computer books, and, you know, I got reasonably good reviews for the copy, but, you know, I was demanding. Listen. There you go. Right. So it's you and I against the world. But we're talking about the overall UFO field per right. se. We're talking about how it relates to the general public at large. Look, I got to tell you, most people that look at this field, and especially the last mm, five, six years, they've got to they've got to look at it and say, these people are lunatics. Sure. Lunatics. And they would be right. Because, look, <laughs> to begin with, who today, active UFO research, is really getting down to the nuts and bolts? You talk about nuts and bolts ufology, and I'm talking about the real cases, the real facts, the real government documents on it, and people's eyes glaze over. They want to hear about Billy Meyer. They want to hear about uh -oh. Sean Morton's secret space program. They want to hear about trips to the Pleiades or to Andromeda. I mean, come on. David Sarita. I met this guy a few years ago. Why? Why did you do it? I'm going to lose it now. Come to Andromeda with my dog and my fiance. I can't wish to figure out which one I love more. Oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, I went home and took a shower. <laughs> yeah. With lava soap, the kind that rips your skin off. Remember the no, let's just Irish no, Spring. No, man, that that you know what? Now we're gonna just go off the paracast. We're talking about soap for a moment because Irish Spring is a terrible. Well, soap we can talk about mostly. cheese. Oh no, no, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> now, now let's talk about soap, Don. Irish Spring. Listen, if if Tim Benal can do his baseball shtick, we can talk about soap. Something practical. I prefer no. cheese. No, I prefer soap. No. Meatballs and spaghetti. Listen. Oh, stop it. Irish soap made of petroleum byproducts. It's When you w rinse it off, it doesn't actually leave your skin. What you need, Don, to wash yourself in a proper way is a good olive oil-based soap. You want to stay away from, like, the large soaps. You want a good olive oil-based soap. Let me tell you about one of the most wonderful baths I ever had in my life. was in Okinawa. Okay, I had gone There's in. There's naked for, Japanese women involved here, right? Exactly. Yes, no, yes. No, they no. and they bathe you. I mean, the way. And this is going to sound so incredibly sexist today in the 21st sexist. century, but yeah. the way a man ought to be bathed. Ooh. I have two words for you. 
and it would be a happy ending. <laughs> anyway, let's kind of skip the soap. No, no wait a minute. No, we're, we're trying to wash away the grime. Well, I know that, but we're going to have to use some very strong soap. With that's why I was getting to lava soap because lava's like got like I think they make it with sand. So pumice. you talk about a pumice. pumice. Is that really pumice? Yes. You know that as a fact. It's pumice. Yeah. Now we're not talking about like this because it's like an old old lava soap seemed grittier than the new lava soap. So which lava soap do we need to wash away the Billy Myers stench? Is what I want to know. I I wash with usually a concrete brick for that. So you know. Or a cheese grater usually works pretty well. Ah, there you go. Take that. I had, when I was still doing Dark Matters, I had a, and I didn't keep it, I had a, a piece of correspondence that I received, email from Michael Horn, oh, telling no. me that so I should need more than lava soap for that, I'll tell you. Or I was too afraid to debate him. Yeah, yeah. And it's probably a good thing that, I didn't have him on because, you know, I don't think I would have been that polite. He's not a nice man. And the bottom line is that... Uh, but I've never been known to, to shy myself away from controversy. Well, here's the thing about this whole conversation, right? So, and this is something I've noticed, and, and I know Jeff will will probably have some strong thoughts about this. He usually disagrees with things I say, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to talk. I have to talk. I gotta say what I want to say. It's my show. Ah. You have two groups of, actually three groups of people involved with this quote unquote field. You have people who treat it as a religion and they're useless. You have people who treat it as entertainment and, uh, you know, they're uh, useless. And then you have people who are genuinely seeking answers to what the hell is going on. And usually these people are people who have seen things, who've had experiences. Um, it's kind of weird how the word experiencer, people sort of automatically assume that it means you've interacted with non-human entities. For my money, experiencer is anybody who has had maybe more than one or two paranormal experiences. And by paranormal, you know, we're talking about UFO sightings or interactions being one category of paranormal experience. There are people like Jeff and like myself who have had in the span of our lifetimes, a whole bunch of different weird things happen. And the, the result, the long-term effect of this, is that it puts you in a state of mind where you have to seek answers to this. And, and that, I think, is relatively healthy. You know, when you go through these weird, unexplained mysteries, you come out of the other end. And if, I think if you're thoughtful, if you're, if you're introspective, if you have the ability of introspection, you have to try to get some kind of a handle on this because, and, and I'll speak for myself and, and Jeff, you can, you can, you know, state otherwise, but I know in my case, the fact that I've come out of my experiences not having completely lost my mind, like for real, gone completely mad, tells me that I've got some good internal fortitude because I've seen, I've seen like, like, well, in the case of, of Sarita, now part of me actually feels sorry for that loser and I'll tell you why. He has one UFO sighting when he's a kid in Berkeley, and all of a sudden, that one UFO sighting essentially makes him insane. One sighting. One. That's it. He loses his mind. Now, Jeff and I have both had a lot more than one sighting. We've had stuff we're willing to talk about. We have stuff we're not willing to talk about. I don't think Jeff is insane. I'm not so sure about myself at this point, but the bottom line is that the fact that we can have a rational discussion about this, I think puts us in a certain category of people who, unfortunately, 
are in the minority here. We are not looking at this as entertainment. We're not looking at this as religion. I have very little use for religion. I want some answers, damn it. And the problem is, in the search for those answers, the groups of people who belong to this as religion as enter- and, and as entertainment, they're far larger than those of us who are seeking answers, A. And B, they are much less informed about this, I, I believe. I could be wrong about this, um, but they're, they're not open to actually looking at the situation and trying to really understand it because their minds are made up. The people who want us entertainment, they just want to live vicariously through other people's experiences. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, an ultimate UFO roundtable featuring ex-UFO investigator Don Ecker and Jeff Ritzman, who is, is a UFO investigator who's still doing it, and probably with difficulty sometimes. Don, I think for people who missed your previous appearance on the show, maybe take a minute to explain why you got so fed up with the UFO field that you basically gave up most of it, except for the time that we drag you kicking and screaming into one of these sessions. Well, you know, I started actively researching, writing, investigating cases back in 1987. And for those people that do not or are not aware of what I've done over the years, up until 1986, I was a police officer. I was a detective, and I medically retired in 86. Now, back in the early 80s, a case that crossed my desk that I investigated involved two mutilated, exsanguinated cows. In other words, cattle mutilations. Now, explain that exsanguinated, if you haven't seen CSI, means the blood was removed. Yes. I, I was trying to lift the level of this Paracast episode, Gene. So I was using some big words. Forgive me. <laughs> Hello? I'm here. Boy, that's uh, your are, are, are you trying to imply that the level was low? <laughs> in uh, 87, in order to keep myself mentally active, and I was at the time going through physical rehab, I bought a computer system, and I compounded that error by getting a modem 
And then I discovered CompuServe, or as it's known, CI dollar sign. And I signed on to CompuServe, and at six bucks an hour with a 300 baud modem, if you can imagine that, I stumbled over a forum on CompuServe called Issues. And in there, lo and behold, were a number of posts about various UFO cases, and they had an active discussion group going on. And then I found a cattle mutilation file. Now, i got to tell you, it was like that old, oh boy, and I'm going to date myself, Ford commercial that used to run years ago where the light bulb clicked on. That's exactly what happened inside my head. And I became intrigued. As a matter of fact, one could say even to an extent I became somewhat obsessed by it. And I decided that I was going to attempt to find out just exactly what was going on by using police procedures, methodologies, protocols. And unfortunately, I was naive enough at the time to think that everybody associated and affiliated with the research and study of UFOs would appreciate that. Well, boy, was I mistaken. There were a lot of people even then that had agendas that did not really have much to do with getting to the truth of it. Mm -hmm. And that's basically how I got pulled into this. Now, did you ask oh, why I left? Well, after banging around for 20 years in this field and getting nowhere, and if anything, seeing the level of discourse descend, the investigations, if you can even call investigations, that were being conducted by various people in the field. I'll give you an example. One of the people originally back in the late 80s that I thought was a crackerjack investigator was Linda Moulton Howe. I can recall seeing back in the very early 80s the documentary that she conducted on cattle mutilations called A Strange Harvest. And I thought that here was somebody that was honest-to-God, a real honest-to-God reporter. And then in the last 10 to 15 years, some of the cases that Howe has been promoting that, well, one comes to mind from Brazil. Now, A.J. Guevara, do you, do you know A.J.? Oh, yes, yeah. we do, yes. Okay. Really came out in a vigorous, uh, I don't want to say assault on Howe, but a vigorous, I guess, attack on her methodology promoting what he had apparently proven to be an absolute total hoax with a guy down in Brazil who claimed, right now the only thing that's coming to mind was he had a picture of a bed sheet with a handprint on it yeah, that was yeah. supposedly an alien handprint right. or an ET handprint, that Gavard had basically proven the whole thing was total garbage, and yet Linda still promoted it. I can remember back in the early 90s when I conducted the first expose that I did on Bill Cooper, William Mil Milton William Cooper, one of the great BS artists of the UFO field par excellence forever. And she was saying, well, you know, Bill, yeah, but when he first came out, you know, he had some really good things to say. Well, give me a break. You know, it's like when I was a cop, I used informants on various cases okay informants from the street 
sometimes you could really depend upon what they said, but let them get caught lying one time. And, buddy, I was done with that forever. If they lie to you once, why would you trust them again? And this was something I kept saying ad nauseum to people within the field. This guy is full of crap. You know, it's been proven he's full of crap. Why would you believe him? Well, because of this or because of that Clifford Stone. Cliff Stone was a guy that I met many years ago. I knew Cliff. I like Cliff. Cliff's a hell nice, of a guy. Nice man. Nice, man. nice fellow. But Absolutely. Clifford Stone sent a garbage story to UFO magazine about 10 years ago about his UFO secret missions when he was a troop in Vietnam yeah. and how he would sneak out of the wire at night and do all this weird stuff, meet this secret colonel UFO guy that he claimed was his contact, get briefed, and then sneak back into the camp. Well, you know what, pal? I was in Nam. I was there twice. 26 months I spent in Southeast Asia. And the idea, like I said, I like Cliff, but Cliff was this pot-bellied little guy. The idea of him climbing out through the razor wire with Viet Cong <laughs> all over the landscape with nothing but a knife in his teeth just struck me as, once again, pure garbage. Maybe he felt he was Rambo, or maybe he uh, felt... I was about to do a... Well, you Adrian. Uh. <laughs> I'm going to go get that. See, I was going to do a whole Rambo thing. You screwed it up, man. Oh, I'm sorry. You, uh, well, forget it. On a personal level, I like Stone. The nice man. Right. When it came to this UFO daring do, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I just right. didn't exactly. buy it. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that Greer will pull these guys in. Now, I had a very, very close friend whom... Greer originally asked to be a part of this project that he had going back in uh, D.C., Dr. Carl Wolf. Now, do you know Carl? No. Okay. Carl was, back in the 60s, an Air Force electronics technician who had a top-secret clearance. He basically worked on top-secret material if it broke down. I'm talking about electronic stuff. He didn't go to Vietnam. He didn't do any of that. But he was back here, and he had a situation happen to him at Langley Field. Mm. Okay, this was circa 66, somewhere in there, when the first unmanned lunar probes went to the moon. Mm. Now, Carl, when he was in there, discovered a lot of things. As a matter of fact, at one point, because of my lunar research that I was conducting on lunar phenomena, we discussed, the two of us, writing a book together on this lunar phenomena. But be that as it may, he was in there when the first photographs were coming back from one of these unmanned probes. A printer broke down that was printing out the strips of, of film that was being sent back by telemetry. And there was a young guy in there waiting for Carl to come in and work on this equipment. And we reported on this, incidentally, in UFO magazine. But Carl said, and he said, Don, while I was in there, this guy looked at me, and I could tell something was wrong with him. And I knew better than to say anything. This was a top-secret area. As a matter of fact, it was the NSA guys that was running this particular operation, not NASA. NSA were there first. And he said, this guy finally turned to me and said, we found a base on the moon. And Carl said, I looked at him and I said, what? Whose? He said, on the far side of the moon. And he showed him a picture. Now, this is the uh, 
the story that Carl told me never deviated from the story one time. And so I, I talked to him and investigated, and, and all the dates and everything that he told me checked out. So I have to assume, knowing Carl, that he wouldn't lie to me. But here was apparently irrefutable proof that something was discovered up there that they kept covered up. And over the years, there have been tons and tons and tons of stories about the moon. But anyway, Carl was asked by Greer to go back and talk about this. But he said, I got back there, Don. And he said, the first thing that hit me, they had a really weird political agenda going on. And then they had people like Clifford Stone there, people that really had questionable stories. One guy they were going to pull back, they originally asked him to appear and it's obvious Greer never vetted any of these people. It was Guy Kirkwood, a guy that I personally did a major expose on in 1992 as a liar, claiming to have been an Air Force interceptor pilot. And after a while, all the years of this finally washed over me, and I just simply said, you know what? I've had enough. But yet, Don, here you are telling us things that are deeply fascinating, uh, stuff that... Yeah, I'm sure anybody who just heard what you just said, their ears are perked up and they're like, what? Secret base on the moon? What the hell is he talking about? Here's the thing. Anybody who just heard what you said, you know, they hear about what you feel is a credible witness saying, I saw pictures from the other side of the moon of what looks like a base. You feel this guy's legitimate. Okay, let's say for a moment the guy's legit. He's telling you the truth. And I'm assuming that you feel strongly that he's being honest with you. Did you ever uncover any other corroborating evidence or testimony that would give any credence to that claim? Absolutely, I did. Now, I'm going to give you guys just a little hint. I can't talk a lot about it at this point. Hopefully, in the next couple of months, I will be able to. But since the mid-1990s, one TV producer that I have known for a long time. Matter of fact, he had me as a commentator on a number of programs that he produced back in the 90s. I had been trying to get this guy interested in, and he has a deep interest in the overall paranormal, you know, UFO area. But I had uh, been trying to get him convinced in doing something on the moon. Well, with a photograph that I procured, it's all I was point, from an official NASA site, and the testimony of a guy that I had interviewed in 1995, and incidentally, that interview was just vetted through some new extraordinary software that detects the truthfulness. It's a voice analysis type software. This guy was telling the truth, at least from what the the people that read the test told me. This guy was being 95 to 100 percent accurate in what he was saying. This individual is very interested in putting together a show that we're working on right now on this lunar phenomenon. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? 
Well, since 1948, fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. On the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we have Jeff Ritzman and Don Ecker, the ultimate UFO roundtable. And now we're looking at maybe the ultimate moon mystery. Now, this is not something that like a Richard Hoagland is trying to purvey. This is something that you feel is really authentic. Do you know where Richard Hoagland discovered the moon, Gene? In the sky? No. (laughs) He discovered it, and I mean this literally. He discovered it on my old radio program, UFOs Tonight. Now, you, you may say, after what are you talking about? Back in the 90s, in the early 90s, when I became fascinated by these lunar mysteries, you know, one thing I did, and I thought my wife was going to hit me with a very large stick. I bought an 8-inch Schmidt-Cast Green telescope. And, boy, I'll tell you what, you talk about seeing some detail on the moon. But with this telescope, and I used to go in when I'd have my show and I would do moon programs with various guests that I had on, I would talk about what I saw while I was observing the moon and what have you. I had a guy on by the name of Jim Sylvan who first introduced me to George Leonard's book, Somebody Else is on the Moon. Now, do you are you familiar with Leonard? I'm not. That's just me, Biedney. I think Jeff Gene, is. This, I think Gene dated him in college. This book is an underground <laughs> classic today, if you can even find it. But you can go up to, to Amazon.com, and uh, they have it listed up there. Well, Leonard was a scientist who, back in the very, very early 70s, right as the Apollo program was winding down, uh, had a friend who worked or was working in NASA and told him covertly about some of the astounding things that the astronauts had seen and photographed on the moon. Well, he was able to secure from NASA... Because we're talking about a very, very early. This is before any of the, the real big UFO stuff got, got really going. He was able to secure a number of photographs. And he published them, not self-published, but he published them, I think it was Ballantine Books, in 75, 76. And Sylvan was the guy that first told me about this. So I found a copy of Leonard's book, and I read it. I was amazed. And I had Sylvan on my show. After the show was over, Jim told me, he said, Don, he said, do you know Dick Hoagland? And I said, yeah, sure I do. 
He said, let me ask you. He said, could you put me in touch with Hoagland? Because I really am fascinated and I admire what he did with the work on the face on Mars. I would like to send him some of these moon photographs that I sent you. I said, sure, I'll put you in touch with him. So it was about six months later, finally, Dick discovered this big, you know, crystal, whatever, this glass tower thing on the moon that he was talking about. And I waited to hear, waited to hear, never heard a word about Jim Sylvan. So when I had Jim on again, I asked him, I said, Jim, did you ever get in touch with Dick Hoagland? He said, well, Don, he said, I sent him a great big package of stuff, photographs, a letter, what I was trying to do. And to make a long story short, he said, I never heard back from Dick Hoagland, never got a word, never, never that he received the material, anything. And suddenly here he is talking about lunar phenomena. Well, that's an old, old story with Dick Hoagland. Dick Hoagland has done that many, many times over the years uh, with various peoples, and he's burned bridges all across 30 years of, of this type of research. You know, what, what can I say? But that's where Dick Hoagland discovered the moon, was on my show, UFOs Tonight. So basically what he did was basically take information that other people send him where he hears about, and he claims that this is his own information that he discovered. Exactly. The moon is, a, is an absolutely fascinating topic. You know, I've, I've been off and on, I've been working on this for almost as long as I've been in UFO research. I've got about almost 20 years of data that I've accumulated and people that I've talked to and research that I've conducted. So if you were to ask me, Ecker, what are you saying? I would say that there is a great untold story there concerning the moon. And if God is willing and the river doesn't rise, I intend to be one of the people that tries to break that open. So here's a skeptical question, Don. All right, let's say that NASA knows that there are structures on the moon that are obviously not ours. Do we assume for a moment that all the Russian missions, the, the Russian probes that have gone to the moon, that they would have not seen this, that they would have not photographed this, that they would have not broken this news to the world as the ultimate way to steal the glory of going to the moon? Help me well, out. Number on that. one, they never got to the moon. They got unmanned probes to the moon. That's what I mean, sure. Right. photographed. Look, right. I think, and basically I've been told this by a former Soviet cosmonaut, personally, Dr. Marina Popovich, although she never flew in space, her husband did, General Pavel Popovich, that there was a very loose working arrangement between the Soviet Union's space program back when there was still a Soviet Union, and the American space program. Can I prove that? No. But it only makes sense in the regard that if they encountered something, they, whomever they are, then it would involve the entire planet. And at that time, there were only two nations on the globe that could have mounted effective response to whatever the threat, if it, in fact it was a threat, whatever the threat might have been. And that would have been the Soviets and the Americans. So if they would have discovered something, and I have no doubt they probably did, 
Would they have kept it to themselves? Absolutely. They have basically the same type of working arrangement with their scientific establishment and their military as what we do. How many mainstream straight-line scientists today in the United States is even willing to publicly acknowledge that there is a phenomenon called UFOs? Jeff, I think you've been yeah. listening to this and you've been quiet, pondering, deliberating, yeah. and all that stuff. What's your reaction to this? Well, I mean... As far as the moon goes, I don't know enough about it, to be honest with you. Don's got 20 years on me there. So, you know, is it plausible? Hell yeah, it's plausible, yeah. I mean, this all goes back to, you know, what's the government know and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, again, a lot of this stuff, I have to wonder, knowing how shifty some of this stuff can be, and knowing that, you know, I think it's, I think, and Don can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but... You know, as far as, you, you know, talking about stuff that's been portrayed as a cover-up and been portrayed as uh, a cover-up of UFOs, a cover-up of extraterrestrial situation or whatever you want to call it, as kind of a, a shade over or a cover for uh, some kind of other black-budgeted program. You know, my question would be, you know, for something that, as far as the moon goes is, again, the Russian thing, I got a problem with that. If that's, you know, if that's true, okay, you know, but uh, I kind of agree with David. It's like, why why wouldn't the Russians, you know, break that kind of thing if they saw something? If they didn't, they didn't. But, uh, you know, when you start talking about, you know, what astronauts have seen and all that, I mean, I, you know, you can't argue with the, with those guys. You can't. My biggest question is, is as it is with all of this stuff, it's like you talk about somebody like Gordon Cooper, who had like an amazing sighting, a couple actually, I think. And while there is this overlying, looming NSA keeping everybody quiet, then all of a sudden you've got an astronaut of all people coming out and talking about UFOs or things on the moon or what have you. What would be the reason that they would be allowed to? To, to come public with this, all of a sudden it just it just comes out, and uh, I don't doubt them. I don't doubt them a bit. Uh, in fact, to me, that's some of the most. Uh, I, I got in a major fight with James Oberg years ago over, you know, what he had to say about people like Cooper and uh, was a story Musgrave has talked a lot about, you know, extraterrestrial sightings when when he's been on shuttle missions and whatnot. You know, how is it that these people are allowed to talk? And uh, is it because they're public figures and if something happened to them, then everybody would know, oh, he must have been telling the truth or, you know, or what? I mean, it, it just seems like all of this stuff, uh, I, I realize that whatever the government may know about this, it has got to be heavily compartmentalized. Nobody knows the whole picture um, or few have the whole picture. I knew Colonel Cooper. Uh-huh. And uh, a number of years ago prior to his death, Vicky and I had a chance to meet and spend a number of, well, basically an entire afternoon with him at his offices in Van Nuys, California. And, of course, we touched many, many areas uh, during that extraordinary day in my life. As a matter of fact, if you read my my goodbye paper, my 20 years in the U.S., right. I had, uh, there's a photo in there that, that, Colonel Cooper was gracious enough to take with me, and this guy was genuinely one of my heroes. Right. Now, Cooper was an iconic figure. He was one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts, the first of the first. Right. 
And when he talked at the U.N. back in the 70s about UFO stuff, he was not real specific other than the fact that he believed that there was a reality to that. However, his book, which he, he wrote right before he died, and that I uh, uh, reviewed, he went into it in more detail. And the day that we met him at his offices, he went into great detail about this. Hmm. Now, in order for the forces that be to silence somebody like Gordon Cooper, hell, it would be a lot easier to silence somebody like me. Cooper was, was genuinely a giant on the American landscape. But talking about silencing astronauts, you've got to ask yourself, especially during the Apollo years, all those men... And they were only men in those days, not women. All those right. men were military officers, mm -hmm. subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. They had a double whammy on them. Right. Not only were they, did they sign security agreements with NASA, but they had the military at their back. So had they have stepped out of line in some amazing way, and said, my God, you know, we saw something up there. Although that did transpire on several occasions, that they did talk about seeing something unusual, unknown, they could have been much easier easier silenced then than especially mm -hmm. even now, today. Mm -hmm. But these guys mm -hmm. also saw themselves as patriotic Americans, patriots in the truest sense of the word. If their military commanding officers or the civilian government people said, you know what, we can't talk about this because if we do, there's a chance of public panic, whatever, right. I think those guys would have probably gone along with the program then and not have talked about it. So did Cooper then create the equivalent of a deathbed confession? I think he did, yes. And, you know, I, I know Jim Oberg myself. I debated Oberg on Larry King Live about STS-48, that shuttle encounter with the UFO above Australia and New Zealand that I broke back in 90, what was it, 93, I guess. And Oberg and I butted heads about Cooper. It really enraged me that he would denigrate this great man. That's exactly why I tore into him as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has no bones about it. I mean, he has no, not not a not a thought about that, you know. And and what really, what I remember writing to him was, uh, you know, you're you're talking about guys have actually been into space, have been to the moon, have you know, have done all this. Have you, have you ever, you know, been into space? Have you ever, you know, set foot in a situation like that? And you haven't. And I think to, you know, like you say, to denigrate somebody's character like that by saying, oh, well, they just don't know what they saw, you know, <laughs> that that just kind of, you know, the, you know I, I equate him to like, you know, James McGaha. It's the same thing. It's like the ancient equivalent to the modern day expression that pilots are not better observers than the average exactly. people. Yes. On the exactly. Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany, we'll have Don Ecker and Jeff Ritzman join us on the other hour of the Paracast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space 
and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world, a woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack. Of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. This is hour two of the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and the one, the only, the ultra famous Photoshop expert of the planet Earth. Yeah, yeah. David Vietti. Uh-huh. You see, he knew who he was. He answered before I even said his name. And we have an ultimate UFO roundtable here with Don Ecker and Jeff Ritzman. Jeff, you had a question of Don. Yeah, Don, I'm curious. You know, we've all we've all heard Gordon Cooper on, on TV talking about uh, his sightings and, and whatnot. I was curious what he might have imparted to you personally when you when you met with him. Well, of course, that was one of the questions that I asked him. And uh, he relayed a, an incident that happened back in the early 50s during the Korean War, as a matter of fact, although he was stationed at the time in Germany, was part of a, an F-86 Sabrejet squadron. And they were scrambled when there were some unknown objects that were being tracked pretty high altitude, according to what he told me, around... 50, 50 plus thousand feet. So they all jumped in their saber jets, took off, and the saber jet couldn't quite get to the altitude of whatever these objects were. But of course, they were able to see them. I believe that uh, some of the guys, from what he told me, took gun camera footage of these things. And when they got back, the powers that be informed them that what they were actually chasing were seed pods that got caught in the jet stream or whatever. They were seed pods. Uh, not like the seed pods you have, of course, in the invasion of the body snatchers where it just converts people into them. Right. <laughs> well, I don't think so. Well, maybe they but, think uh, we are one of them because we believe that nonsense. I'll tell you, Cooper was... I, I just... To this day, I have the greatest respect and admiration for him, and I truly miss the man. Don, come on. You didn't answer just question. Give up the good stuff, man. What did Cooper tell you? That, <laughs> that now that he's no longer with us, he won't mind you telling us. Well, you know, nobody talked to me about that ahead of the ahead of schedule. Nobody sent me a check. Nobody uh, promised me dollars, you know? <laughs> What can I tell you? No, he was he was very upfront. 
about his belief that there, in fact, were extraterrestrial intelligences that came here. I think you guys are probably very familiar with what he relayed concerning uh, Edwards Air Force Base in 1957, aren't you? Yeah, the landing. The landing, right. And that they filmed it. Yeah, yeah. I queried him at great length about that. And one thing that I can I can recall, and I said to him, I said, Colonel, I said, sir, are you telling me that when these guys came back with that film and they described to you what they witnessed, that you didn't immediately throw that thing on a projector and take a look? And he was very blunt. He said, no, he said, I didn't. He said, I had orders because as soon as I heard about it, he con had to contact a contact number with this unusual situation that happened. He was informed by superior officers that they would immediately send a courier jet to Edwards to pick this thing up and then take it back to Washington, D.C. Hmm. He said, so I didn't put it on a projector, but he said what I did do was I pulled the film off the roll and I looked at individual frames. And I said, okay, well, what'd you, what, what did you see? He said, what I saw was a disc in, in a series of frames, a disc-shaped object flying in, and then lowering three legs. It sat down on the lake bed. It just sat there. And these guys, when they saw it, well, you can imagine what their <laughs> what their attitude was. My God, what is that? And when they started to approach it all the time with the with the cameras running, this thing suddenly retracted the legs. It's hovering in midair, and it took off in a flash. He said, so, yeah. He said, now, I don't know about you, but I don't know of any technology, especially then, circa 1957, that we had that could have duplicated that. And I said, well, what happened after that? He said, they flew in. They had a courier get off the aircraft. We took the film out in a in a locked briefcase, handed the thing off. I had to sign papers. The guy grabbed everything, jumped back on the aircraft, and took off. And I said, well, did you ever get an after-action report or anything? He said, that was the last I ever heard of it. And then I had a flash, and I said, well, sir, what about Project Blue Book? Blue Book was active then. Did that ever make it in Blue Book? Nope. So, so that creates the impression here that Blue Book was the smokescreen, which had the easy-to-explain cases for the most part, though a fair amount weren't explainable, and that there were whole numbers of cases that never got into that report were never revealed publicly. Is that what we're conveying here? Exactly. Blue Book was never anything more after Ed Ruppelt. After Ruppelt. By this time... Bob Friend was a commanding officer. Later, Hector Quintanella was the commanding officer. And at that point, Blue Book had simply devolved into a public relations campaign to assuage any fears that the American public might have had about the UFO situation. But now, here's something from that encounter that always made an impression on me. This thing landed in front of them. It obviously was aware they were watching it. I'm guessing it obviously was aware they were filming it. And it just sat there. Now, 
call me silly. It, this thing didn't cloak itself. It, it only did an evasive maneuver when they started approaching it. Basically, this thing wanted to be seen. Either it wanted to be seen or it didn't care. See, t- to me, there's a clue in that. If we look at this whole situation and we recognize that in some cases this thing doesn't want to be seen, but in other cases it's almost like it goes out of its way, like the O'Hare episode. The thing basically is hovering there for like 18 minutes, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's hovering in the sky above the busiest airport in the country. That's not, from my point of view, that's not an accident. This thing wants to be seen. And what this tells me is that, indeed, there is some form of disclosure happening. And it's subtle. It's not in our faces. But something is going on. And that is another clue. Well, you know what? You're mentioning almost here this thing I had in my newsletter this week. Yeah, I I, I guess that's exactly right. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't get the Paracast newsletter, which is free, you get it from our homepage. Just click a button, enter your email address, and subscribe. I have a theory here that instead of having this... I thought I subscribed, and I never received a copy of it, guys. Well, I'll I'll check that, Don, okay? We'll look into it and make sure that you get your copy, and if not, I'll just forward it to you. But here's the deal. Maybe the silence group took your copy. That's how it works, you know. But here's the deal. government. Absolutely, whoever they are. I suggested very simply that disclosure will not be a single process where they have the press conference on the White House lawn or in the Pentagon or in Europe or NATO, whatever. It will be a long-term gradual process done very, very slowly, little bits and pieces of information given to us, like, gee, maybe there is some kind of life on Mars, but it may be microbes. Gee, maybe there are other planets orbiting other star systems that may have the building blocks of life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually we become accustomed to the idea of some sort of visitor, and eventually we realize that they're already here. Well, you know what, Gene, the, the thing that that uh, I get what you're saying, yeah, and that's probably uh, that could be happening now. But what I've always thought about, as far as the whole cover-up and disclosure thing, is that yeah, the, the the government can come out and say it's real, and and we don't know where they're from, and you know, and maybe they can make us do things we don't want to do, and maybe they can make us forget things. But one of the things that I've always thought about is that. Who is the actual architect of the cover-up? If this enigma did not want to be secretive anymore, it wouldn't be. And at that point, I don't think there's a damn thing the government can cover up. This whole UFO thing is elusive, crazy elusive. And, you know, at that point, i got to ask myself, well, who's the real cover-up? Who's actually doing the cover-up here? Is it them or is it some faction of the government? I'm not seeing this this forthright, uh, you know, appearance uh, of UFOs and, uh, and of beings on the ground. And all. If it didn't want to be secretive, it wouldn't be. It would have full so. control, but that's the other issue, too. Do we even have control? If we know certain things about it, is there always that danger that they will have the agenda, they will run the entire disclosure process on their terms? But then again, we could also assume that we have an agreement. This is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? 
Conspiracy Journal, and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at mrufo at webtv.net. That's mrufo at webtv.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. You are about to enter another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to The Paracast with my two friends, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Don Ecker, retired UFO researcher who still has an awful lot to say on the subject, and, of course, our friend, UFO investigator Jeff Ritzman. David, do you want to jump in with a question? Actually, I like to think of Jeff as a master guitar builder, not a UFO researcher, but oh, he's a UFO. And, and the artist, by the way, who created our new spiffy logo for the Paracast. Oh. And a uh, a now a well known blogger as well. And I don't know about well known, but yeah. dude, you're well known. You're known by the people who are well, right? Uh, <laughs> and those who are not. So that includes me too. Well, look, let's now really screw this whole conversation up, which is that here we are talking about the UFO aspect of this, but something that, for my money, the more credible researchers, the ones who are really looking for answers, what they seem to come up with. What my experiences tell me and my discussions with Jeff, what these inform me is that there is an element of this that is so incredibly strange that it makes conventional discussions about conventional motives almost irrelevant. And this is where it's pretty clear that people like Jacques Vallée, essentially by stating this early on in the discussion, ended up creating a number of enemies, uh, people who, you know, you bring up the nuts and bolts thing. Well, there are people who are very vested in certain theories about this. And if we look at Valet's work and the fact that he essentially got to the point where he, I think, came to some conclusion about this high weirdness aspect. This is, I know, something that uh, is one of Jeff's favorite topics about this. It's become one of my more vexing questions which is that it does appear that there is a whole aspect to reality that we have absolutely no real understanding of and ufos are a manifestation of that but not the only manifestation and by compartmentalizing 
research, if we're going to call it that, which I think is being generous, let's just call it study and make it more honest. If we're going to compartmentalize study of different types of paranormal activity, we will actually never move any of this understanding forward because at some level there are common threads, there are points of connection between these things that it seems to me are very few people who are taking the generalist approach to studying this to get to a more meta level of understanding. That is something that apparently is too rich for people in this field. We've had this discussion with Stan Friedman, who we respect as a scientist, whose work we respect, but Stan's a great example of someone who, when you start to bring up these topics, he won't go there. He's not the only one. And, of course, the problem is, I'm cognizant of the fact that when you go to that place, then you have this, what I call the distasteful element of the New Agers, kind of push their way in into the room and start to do their religious thing in the corner, which might be good for them. It works for them. God bless freedom of speech. I don't think it gets us necessarily closer to the truth. While at the same time, I recognize that there might be a spiritual component of all of this that as, uh, I don't know, what, reductionists? As people who are trying to think logically, we, we, don't, we can't quantify it, so we don't want to deal with it. But if we don't turn to it at some point, we're also not going to bear any fruit with the purely scientific, by-the-book approach. There's some level of science that is right now beyond our grasp. So do we just ignore it, or do we confess that we don't have all of the understanding, we don't have the instrumentation? Fifteen years ago, I met John Keel at a conference. We were having dinner one evening, and Keel was somebody that at that time I had uh, a lot of admiration for. I was totally blown away back in the mid, I guess it was mid-70s, when I had a chance to read his book, The Mothman Prophecies, which took place not that far from my home in central western Pennsylvania back in the mid-60s. Incidentally, when I had my rather extraordinary UFO sighting, and we were talking about a lot of things, and I'm really geared toward the factual aspects of it, and of course, Keel was off into the ether, in many ways somewhat like Jacques Vallée. The trickster aspect of the phenomenon, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting there talking, and I was chugging down an iced tea, and he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, Don, I'm going to tell you something. And I said, well, okay, John, I'm all ears. He said, the secret of UFOs, okay? Guys, I swear to God, this is what he told me. He said, Don, UFOs are a bucket of garbage. <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? It's all crap? Exactly. No. Sorry, he's wrong. He's wrong. No, the, just the overall, the way people can get wrapped around this subject. Very wrapped around it. But, Don, Very we've wrapped. already identified that the people who are into this for entertainment and the people who are into this for religion are not relevant to the conversation about understanding. They're not. If you want to learn something about human sociology, if you want to learn something about the cultural anthropology of the species, you can look at those two groups of people and look at their interactions with this topic and maybe learn something. But that's about humans. 
It's not Let me about ask you, are we any closer to discovering what exactly is going on today in 2000, and 2008 than Donald Kehoe was back in 1958? Donald Kehoe back in 1951 was already saying, there's spaceships, end of story. That's as far as he ever went. Every no, single he built, he came out with. that's not what I'm saying, Gene. Sure. That's not what I'm saying. I understand. Are we, are we, no, very little, very little. I don't think we've exactly. made any progress since Donald Kehoe was saying that in the early 50s. I think that a lot of the opinions you hear about UFOs today are perhaps refinements of that, but... Basically, the basic texture is the same. The basic information is the same. Even the people who talk about paranormal UFOs, ultra-dimensional, that goes back to the 60s also. Hold on, hold on. I have to interject here. Jeff, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. 20 years of looking into this topic, more than 20 years of experiences with this <laughs> to call it a phenomenon is not correct because we know it's right. more than one, so it's a phenomenon. Right. Okay, so you're... Some huge bulk of your life you've spent somehow immersed in this. Do you feel at this point in time, you, as a person who is interested in this and also as an experiencer, do you feel that you are any closer to any objective understanding of what this is really about than you were, let's say, 20 years ago? Yes. <laughs> for now. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, for now. I mean, when I first kind of got into it i was into it as the nuts and bolts guy i was into it as it must be some extraterrestrial culture coming here or some exotic culture from elsewhere wherever elsewhere might be right but i looked at it as ping a rock real as my old uh, research partner used to say could you ping it with a rock these days while it may interact with the environment i'm not necessarily of the opinion anymore that it's nuts and bolts I then gravitated towards how it affected my life. And when Don talks about being obsessed, well, I can relate because I was 10 years ago. You wouldn't have been able to shut me up on this show because I'd have been rambling on and on and on because I was so incredibly obsessed with it. It occupied pretty much my every thought except for sleeping and work. Uh, and even at work, at lunchtime, I had my nose buried in a book. So... The obsessive nature, the way it, not so much the research and the thing, but the experiencer end of things, the way it debilitated my life with the fear of it, the fear of it happening, realizing it at a certain point that it didn't matter if my wife went out with me when I took the garbage out. If it was going to happen, it was going to happen. Realizing that you have no toehold on reality like you think you do, these are all, that's pretty scary stuff. I don't look at it these days as, a nuts and bolts phenomena. I look at it as something else. And I don't think that something else is as real as we would think of as when we say real. I think real is relative. I think it's entirely possible that we're dealing with something that doesn't have to be real if it doesn't want to. I think it relies somewhat upon us to get here. Um, Jeff, Jeff, yes, sir. excuse me. Let me let me ask you a question, because yes, you know I've I've seen your name on the Paracast forum, and mm -hmm. I've read some of your posts, but I really did not or was not aware of your experience in this arena. Are you yes, basically saying that you were uh, an abductee? Yeah, that's a bad word, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I was not aware of that. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you, just listening to what you said 
Uh, I got to tell you, my heart has gone out to you because I, I've known a number of people over the years that have been wrestling with that experience. And uh, I'll tell you, man, there's only really one way to handle it, and that's just to coin a phrase, ruck it up and move it out. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I'm trying to do these days. I mean, I reached the point that you did. However, it seemed like a lot of things came together for me about 10 years ago. My wife had seen phenomena I, with me, uh, my friends. We lost a lot of friends. I've said that before on the show. Um, when all this started, I noticed that when I began to notice it in my life, when I began to identify that there was something genuinely strange going on, I think one of the first things that, that, that I was told to do when my wife and I had a, an extremely terrifying experience together was to sit down and write down every odd thing that I could remember from my whole life, not just what had happened recently. And when I did that, and I started making different connections and saying, well, that would kind of explain this, and well, yeah, that happened. And I remember my research partner at the time, who later became my research partner, but at the time he was just a guy that I had met through uh, through a, a mutual friend. He said, uh, don't you think it's a little odd that you've had so many UFO sightings in your life when most people don't even have one? <laughs> and I said, yeah, it, it is kind of weird. And, and and through the years, I've never been in regressive hypnotherapy. I've never done that. Most of what I remember is like I'll remember being on this show right now tomorrow, which has made it kind of difficult because when you remember so much of it, it's hard to feel comfortable in your own skin anymore. And at that point, I kind of looked at, at the whole of my experiences, and I began to see this pattern from people that I'd spoke with who had had similar experiences, who had basically that I would meet and I would have some connective tissue with it within our experience. We would find some kind of commonality in it. And those were the people I focused on answering or asking questions to. And a lot of what I found was an obsessive nature, the debilitation of your everyday life. A Well, depression is a, is a big thing. Uh, divorce and separation from spouses, loss of uh, any kind of spirituality at all, no matter what religion they were or what they believed. It was kind of this breakdown of people that I equated at the time as to not being positive. And I gave a lecture in D.C. for that I did not believe that this was a particularly good thing. And at the time, and up until a couple of years ago, I used to say, you know, I'm not a religious guy, but I look at it, and I and I see it, and the only term that I can put with it is demonic, but that's not the right term either. David helped me out with that and said, maybe we could use the word toxic, and toxic is, is a really good word. It became highly toxic to me. So it was that coming to that head, and at the same time, I had uh, essentially been threatened at work. And I owned my own business at the time by two gentlemen who stopped in there at no later than 3 a.m. I was involved in a case at the time, and they were there to tell me to back the hell off or bad things can happen. Who Do you know who these people were, or did they say that they were from the government or something? They did not say anything. They, went, they came into the shop under the guise of being insurance salesmen and basically gave me the, the rundown. There was two of them. One was smaller, had a mustache, blonde hair, glasses. Probably about five eight, I guess. Around he was shorter than the other one. The other one was the muscle, 
And he was the guy that, as I'm standing at my desk looking at what this man is presenting me as far as they made the claim that they were going around talking to business owners who owned their own business. At 3 a.m.? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was three in the three o'clock hour. I've still got the lights on because I'm in there on my back, airbrushing on the side of a car, and had just finished up. And uh, I mean, I'm not going to say that they pushed their way in. They didn't have like dark sunglasses, the classic man no, in black. No, they had shirt. they had dark blue suits on. They were driving a dark blue sedan. And uh, I call that a man in black, the dark blue. That, yeah, that you works, know, I mean, sure. it was totally unthreatening for the most part until I began noticing that one of them kept trying to get behind me. And when you work in a rural area, you're you're a lot more, especially late at night, rural area. You're uh, you're a lot more aware of when people come into your shop. Where are they in your shop? What are they doing? And I noticed that one of them was while well, he had me. You know, nose down and looking at these charts and graphs, the guy behind me was trying to go through my work computer. Now, to look for what? I have no idea because all it was was a uh, rudimentary internet connection and a, a a plotter for doing letters and design. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Begetney, Jeff Ritzman, and Don Ecker here. And Jeff is talking about being visited by two insurance men, quote-unquote, right? three o'clock in the morning. One is snooping around your computer while the other has you occupied looking up something. Right. Well, he would show me like a plan, like what would happen for, uh, you know, if I would get sick or be hospitalized here's what you know coverage we could give you because you work for yourself you're not eligible for this and that and uh, I remember turning around and telling the the taller one I said what are you doing and he says you got anything good in here and he kind of snickered 
And I said, no, and if, if you don't mind, you know, that's a work computer, and I use it to do lettering with, so please don't touch it because you could set my plotter off. I think the conversation at that point got a little more – I knew something was up. I knew something wasn't right because I noticed that a lot of the information that the smaller one was presenting to me, I would ask him questions about, like, well, like this plan here, what would I get if just say, you know, I broke my leg? Well, I don't know. I'd have to call you back about that. But, you know, you'd definitely be covered, but I'm not. I'm unsure exactly what the benefit would be to you. Well, I'm sorry. My uncle's an insurance salesman. He can tell you minute detail of what you're entitled to. This is their job. And I basically entered the conversation after the second time I caught the bigger one messing with my computer. I said, okay, guys, i got to get out of here, and um, uh, I'm going to have to ask you to roll out because i got to get cleaned up. When we got to the door, which was three steps from my office, the bigger one was halfway out the door, and the little one turned to me and said, you know, Mr. Ritzman, you're into some things that uh, could potentially cause you harm. And I remember my head's going, well, I guess he's talking about paint fumes and and, uh, thinners and the possibility of fire. And he says, do you understand what I'm talking about? And I said, sure. And he says, you're, and at that point, he leaned towards me and he says, you're into some very dicey things around here. You could very well come down off this ladder, which is the ladder that I had next to my office because it was inside of a larger garage. You could come down off this ladder, break your neck, and no one would ever know. Are we clear about that? And I said, at that point, (laughs) at that point, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, I know what this is all about. This is about Yaya's case, and uh, yeah. And he said, uh, are we clear? And I said, yes, sir. And he says, Now, why, Jeff, here yes. you are, a guy yes. that you are not basically at this point, you're not nationally known. Right. Right? You you have a, no. you have a basically a body shop. I did uh, custom airbrushing and uh, and gold leaf lettering on fire trucks and okay, race cars okay. and that kind of thing. That's cool. But, you know, and suddenly these guys show up to threaten you. Right. Now, 20 years, I was visible mm-hmm. on a national stage. I embarrassed the government a number of times. And I have been asked continuously, have you ever been visited uh-huh. Did anybody ever come by and tell you to back off? I never as much as heard a peep. Right. Now, to me, this aspect of the whole phenomena never made sense. Of course, I probably would have shoved a two-by-four up the guy's ass. If <laughs> right. Well, at the time, I can tell you, at the time, I was uh, I was a chat host on America Online, which at the time was huge. Um, uh, yes, yes, I remember those I, um, things in America. I worked Online. for yes. sightings on 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 AOL, and then I was when sightings folded up. I was the chat host for Periscope uh, on AOL, which was another yes. big paranormal. What year was area. this, by the way? I might remember you. Jeez, it was. I have no idea. Uh, that's, that's been years ago. Name first time was on the Periscope. There you go. So yeah, did I was I visible? Yeah, I was kind of visible, not not as visible as uh, some of the UFO career, you know career celebrities, but but yeah, and and the short of the story and the reasoning behind, without getting too much into to why I think they were there, I had a young lady contact me privately online about 
her own abduction experiences and that she had she, she was visibly freaked out even online you can tell someone someone's visibly freaked out i had her call me she mentioned to me that she had had an experience where she had injured one of these beings and that i don't know whether it had bled on the floor or whether some 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 substance had been left there by it but she had collected samples in sterile baby food jars uh, had labeled them, had dated them, had literally cut her carpet up where they where they were, and was curious if I could have someone analyze them. And I said, well, I think I can find someone. University of Maryland comes to mind. These guys showed up the day that these samples showed up in my mailbox. She had mentioned to me several times that she had been harassed uh, or thought she was being harassed or spied upon by someone. She made it very clear to me. She's like, if I send you these, you know, whatever you happen to, uh, I want you to keep your eyes open. I want you to see if you happen to notice odd people coming around your house, snooping around your yard, that kind of thing. And this was the day they showed up. Um, you know, the, the Paracast, were you there when they interviewed me one time for an online conference? Periscope? Um I could have been, and I don't remember it. It, it. I very well could have been. Well, I I recall it, and I'll tell you why. During the course of this rather spirited conference online, mm -hmm. one of the users was a woman from, mm, I don't know, down south somewhere. Mm -hmm. Anyway, during the course, you know how chaotic these things would get. Somebody oh, asked yeah. a question. You'd start to type in a uh, an answer, and you'd get you know like maybe five or six people More. butting in. This woman had sent me a uh, question about how could I contact the aliens. Hey. Of course, I immediately thought, oh boy, you know, how could it, how could you contact? And I said, well, uh, what is it that you're looking for? Well, I'm having some problem with my teeth. No. And I, I wrote her back, well, maybe you ought to see a dentist. I was just trying to keep it light and funny. <laughs> well, this woman started to stalk me and stalk me for the next several weeks. I would get these vicious emails from her uh. <laughs> really just going after me because I made fun of her teeth. Well, hell, I wouldn't have known her if she walked through my front door. Right. But, you know, what do I thought? <laughs> what an asinine question. And that woman's name is Danielle Steele. Thank you very much. It's been a great show, folks. And oh, I'm sorry, no, no, wrong, wrong show, wrong show. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Don. Well, anyway, after that little encounter there, I was out. I was done. So I, not only was I disgusted with with uh, how much time I had spent on it, how I had ignored my family, how it almost tore my family apart. But now on top of that, I have this nonsense to deal with. And, you know, were they, weren't they some sort of somebody connected to this? I don't know. Uh, I found it really odd. I think the, the verbiage that the guy used with me and the way he said things, it scared the hell out of me. And, uh, and these two guys ended up following me home. Uh, I pointed them out to my wife as they were sitting across the street. And David can tell you that the complex that I live on, I'm, I'm right across the street from, uh, uh, swimming pool in the tennis court mm -hmm. and they were sitting in that lot right across the street we watched them for about 20 minutes and then they just left 
Why did you call the police? I wasn't being threatened. What was I going to say? They were across the street. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like anybody was knocking on my door or. I guess you, you didn't know. get their license plate either. There was no license plate that I could see. No, no, oh. no. And even when I when they left the uh, when they left the shop, uh, I was. I was shaking, and I was not. Uh, I was not going to look out that window to see what they were doing next. I mean, I debated should I should I call the police right then and there, but uh, but I didn't. I cleaned my place up. I left. I went home, you know. And when I got home, I I did notice somebody following, but I didn't think, you know, I didn't think to turn down an odd street and come back and and go a different way to make sure I didn't do that. Uh, I just wanted to get the hell home. Uh, so were they, weren't they? I don't know. Uh, I find it really odd. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that, that was what put me off of it. I mean, I was done. I threw away everything. I chucked well, uh, everything. Jeff, qualifying question here so people have a clear idea of timelines. Mm -hmm. Basically pulled away from the research aspect of this, but what about your own personal experiences? Did they just stop cold at that point or not? Um, well, I think some of the listeners here know enough about what I think about this to know that I finally put an end to it. I mean, this was the big thing when, when experiencers would come up to me and say, you know, uh, I'm scared and I really want it to stop. And I would say, well, how bad do you want it to stop? Uh, I believe everybody having the experience has some measure of control over it. I mean, my experiences, did they stop cold? They didn't stop cold, but they were nothing like they were before. Uh, not even close. The thing that you had happen when you came here, you know, the, the odd things that would happen to drift through the room. Uh, yeah. yeah, that would keep going. That's kept going ever since. But did I have sightings of very, very odd things? No. Did I have things in my bedroom at night walking around on two feet? No. But did I occasionally hear odd noises in the house? Absolutely. Did I see, you know, fuzzy black boxes floating along the floor? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes... The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of 
the Rockaways, is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're having a fascinating discussion, truly fascinating, with Jeff Ritzman and Don Ecker. Now, I know some of our devoted listeners to the Paracast might recognize a few details of things that Jeff has mentioned before, but we're looking at them in an additional perspective. And now, Don can help, as a former police officer, interrogate Professor Ritzman and maybe get some more information. Well, you know, i got to tell you, I am somewhat uh, astounded by just the few things that I have heard. You know, it's been, a, it's been a search for me for many years trying to make sense of this, which is basically impossible to make sense of. Now, when I hear about things floating along on the floor, mm-hmm. uh, these are things I've never experienced I saw on over. <laughs> Spend a couple of days with me, Don. Come on down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying that uh, that I find this unbelievable. Sometimes I, honest to God, wish I could experience some of these things. A lot of things over the years, I've taken on faith until such time as I know that it's it's not true. But this brings to mind years ago when Bill Moore was still active in UFOs. We used to meet, uh, and William Moore, of course, we're talking about the guy that gave us MJ-12 back in the late 80s. We used to meet every few weeks, every four, five, six weeks, have breakfast, and kind of feel each other out. And I can remember one time we were discussing his involvement in the Paul Benowitz affair. Now, many of your listeners may not know who Paul Benowitz is. But he's rather famous in earlier ufology as uh, being the guy that uh, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations mounted a campaign against and drove insane when he was trying to bring some light on some very strange things that were happening at the Manzano Weapons Storage Area at an Air Force base out here in the West. But at any rate... Benowitz was literally driven into an insane asylum. And Moore was a willing participant during this process, trying to disinform Mr. Benowitz. At any rate, he relayed having gone to Benowitz's house one time, and Benowitz was convinced that aliens, extraterrestrial space guys, were beaming in and out of his house. And the guy was paranoid to the point where he would stack firearms in every corner of his house in the event that while he was there, if aliens beamed in, he could get the drop on them. Well, Moore told me he started talking about seeing these glowing blue balls floating around his house. And he sat there and he said, I counted how many cigarettes Benowitz was smoking in a 45-minute period, now I'll never forget this, 
I counted Paul smoking 28 cigarettes in 45 minutes. Yeah, absolutely been there, done that. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, my God, how could you help do this to another human being? But that's beside the point. And anyway, Moore told me, he said, and then he said, I saw one. And I said, you saw one what, Bill? I saw one of those blue balls floating through his house. And I said, are you serious? Are you telling me you actually witnessed this? And it was, it was the AFOSI guys, people like Rick Doty. Does that name strike a bell? Uh, there we go again, the D word. Had been, had been playing with Benowitz's mind. But then Moore told me he witnessed one of these blue balls of light. And that's what I flashed on, Jeff, when you were talking about seeing things floating through your house. Yeah. Well, we've had we've had the lights. Yeah, we've had the lights floating about and also not floating about, just kind of coming on, going off, not moving. But the 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 fuzzy rectangle that I talk about, uh, I've only seen that once. I think David may have seen it when he came to visit one day and just didn't realize. He thought it was a cat. We don't have a cat. But uh, this box, my mom was here. It was my, uh, I think it was my birthday. They came over, and uh, I was sitting probably six feet away, seven feet away, uh, in in on the couch. My mom was sitting in the corner. I was on the couch, and we have uh, a sunroom that's towards the front end of the house, and then the living room's right attached to that. And um, with the dog laying at her feet, I glanced down at the dog, and something caught my eye off to my right-hand side, and it's a uh, almost shoebox-sized rectangle. And it's black. You can't see through it, but its edges are fuzzy. Like uh, like blurred, but it's not moving that fast. It's only moving at a fairly, I mean, it's not moving blindingly quick, but it's also not not particularly slow either. Just a quick pace goes past the dog. The dog snaps at it, <laughs> and then it it gets over in towards the middle of the room, and it just starts to go down the hallway, and it just fades away. And I looked up at my mom. I said, did you see that? And she says, I saw something down there, but I didn't know what it was. What was that? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and that's only happened that, you know, that ballsy, that one time. It's only been that that one time. But uh, in the house, I mean, you know, we've you seen the lights. throwing you know. a chair at it? I mean, it was too fast. I mean, it's it's so damn shocking. It's not like you really have time. You look at this, and you're like, what the hell? And it's gone. You know, it's that quick. And actually, uh, I, I just want to, want to chime in here for a minute, Jeff, because this is a thing about taking photographs of UFOs that people always question. You know, oh, you're watching this thing. You didn't go find a camera. <laughs> and you have to tell people, look, what, if this happens to you, your legs don't work. You, you're, you're confronted with something that you have no reference point for. You're looking at something that your brain tells you, your, your, your eyes tell your brain, I'm seeing this, and the brain goes, no, you're not. That doesn't exist. Your legs don't move. Your body basically goes into essentially a form of shock. And so uh, this idea that people are going to be immersed in an experience like this and have any sort of a, sort of a logical or premeditated reaction or, or you know, sort of a, a reasonable reaction, oh, I'm, I'm seeing something, I better go grab the camera, uh, it just doesn't work that way. And, and this is something that 
when we bring logic into this discussion, logic just falls apart, and this is where things become very emotional, and this becomes subjective. And, and I know we're kind of coming to the end of our time here, but I think that in in having spoken with Jeff for more than a few hours, more than a few hundred hours, <laughs> one thing that to me is clear is that disclosure of some sort is happening. It's happening on a very subjective level. There are people who, for whatever reasons, have more of a facility with interfacing with this than others. That's just the reality of it. For whatever reasons, we do not know at this time what those reasons are. And ultimately, it seems like the only way we can actually get to real any, any real understanding of this is through individual quest. There's been lately a discussion of trying to create sort of a new group effort to move this discussion forward. And ultimately, I don't know if that's going to yield any positive or productive results. I think, like so many areas of mystery, this ends up becoming a very personal thing. And, I mean, here's where we'll really get weird. What might be an explanation for one person's experiences is very possibly not the same explanation for someone else's experiences, even if they have a tremendous amount of overlap in terms of the detail, in terms of the look, the, 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 the smell, the color. Ultimately, somehow, this stuff interfaces with our minds, is affected by our minds, and our perception of it helps shape what it is. And, and maybe there are some answers to the nature of reality in all of these clues. Maybe what this is really about, all of this is to try to move all of us as a species closer to realizing how little we know, to essentially understand that we are indeed children. Maybe maybe that term, children of God, maybe there's some truth in there if we could only get over the baggage associated with the word God. You know, if you replace God with, I don't know, universe, it seemed to me to be fairly interchangeable. Um, maybe there's there's a truth there. That is, it will only reveal itself when we are ready. And until we are ready, it cannot reveal itself for what it is, is based on what we expect it to be. And our expectations right now are just not realistic. They're the expectations of children, which is, satisfy me now quick. I don't want to deal with ramifications. Just give it to me now. Well, you, know what, you know what, David, I was also wondering here when you were saying that whether it's also a matter of them taking us forward in different ways, this so-called gradual disclosure, but we never see the end of the rainbow. As we understand more, they're still two feet ahead of us or four feet ahead of us. So that's something we'll never discover. We'll just have more mysteries to understand. And you know what? The the quest for understanding of these mysteries, I don't know, call me idealistic or ridiculous, but it seems to me like this has always been the driving force of humanity. You know, we, we want to categorize everything and put it in boxes. And why do we want to do that? Because we can do that. And again, maybe there is an answer there that is <laughs> like so obvious. And if we would just stop being petulant children for like five minutes or even five seconds, we'd get a glimpse of it, maybe. And maybe all of this is, uh, to paraphrase something that Don said earlier, maybe it's all mental, mental masturbation. That, too, is entirely possible. Uh-huh. 
Or maybe our collective unconscious creates these mysteries and we use them as part of our thinking process and our evolutionary process, but it has no external reality beyond what we produce ourselves. I, you know what? No, I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's that. Maybe really what it is is a mechanism of this planet to try to get us to change our behavior at a time when we better change our behavior. Mother Earth is talking to us and saying, Get your act together. And maybe those who claim to have met aliens who tell them in the desert or whatever, hey, stop testing nuclear weapons. It's Mother Earth sending projections telling us on a subconscious level, partially subconscious level, get your act together or there's going to be a new species in control of this planet soon. I think that explanation is as valid as any extraterrestrial hypothesis I've ever heard. What do you guys think? We only have four minutes to think it, so we have to think real fast. Don, uh, you know, why don't right, you go Jeff, from go the aspect? Why don't you go from the aspect of, uh, you know, if you explode a nuclear bomb uh, of any sort, that there are things here that we can't, we don't even know exist because we can't perceive them, and if we can't perceive them, and we set off some kind of uh, weapon that may disrupt their activities or their lives, whatever that may be. Uh, I think that'd be a pretty good reason to show up and say, "Hey, why don't you knock it off?" <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Uh, although Absolutely. I personally have never been told anything about you know any kind of nuclear weapons or anything like that. Nothing like that's ever been said to me. I uh, think it happened mostly in the fifties because then nuclear but, weapons were more upfront and personal than they are yeah. now. Yeah, but I mean, you asked if I have a better handle on it now than I did. Well, I like to think I do. You right. know, in the sense that I know a little bit more about how I think it's operating and. You know, I was out of this for 10 years. David's the one that dragged me back into this crap. So there you are again. <laughs> so thanks a lot, dude. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, but, yeah. you know, I love that too. That's where that's where it goes from here. I mean, I don't think meeting David Biedney was an accident. But yeah. at the same time, you know, he's made me question a lot of things. And from what I've told him, I guess I've done something for him. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't talk to me. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, but that's that's where I stand with it right now. And I Don mean, Ecker, I, you know, I want to push this to you for a second because we have only like two or three minutes left. Don, does anything that we've said so far encourage you to become a little bit more interested in what's going on again? Oh, I've never, ever lost an interest in this subject. As far as active participation, I found it to be basically, at this point, futile. If you were to ask me, do I believe, and I'm talking about strictly now my own personal belief, that there is a physical reality to the phenomenon of UFOs, I will tell you emphatically, yes. Do I believe that that will explain all of it? No. No, I do not believe that. But the type of events, cases, people that have fascinated me for the most part, and I believe I mentioned this on, on the show that I did with, with uh, you and David, Gene, it basically came down to several areas. Encounters in space with NASA astronauts, with shuttles, what have you, the moon, and military encounters, because I believe that potentially the witnesses in those two categories present the best proof that something with a high degree of strangeness, in fact, 
did happen. So do I, do I, have I lost my enthusiasm for what all this may be? No, no, I haven't. But I just decided to take a big, giant step back because I felt that I was at the point when I left, I was spinning my wheels. I found myself basically dissatisfied, disillusioned, and disgusted by what I was observing in the field. And uh, I just needed to, to get away from it. And if you were to ask me, do I miss the daily activities of being involved in this? No, I don't miss that. Well, we're glad to have you on the show anyway. Jeff Ritzman, you told us, I think the last time or the time before that, you were working on a book about your experiences, about your research. How is that yes. coming? Uh, slow. <laughs> slow. Do. Uh, I did start the website, which is www.thesecondeclipse.com, spelled out. So, yeah, I'm still working on it, but it's like the more I write, the more I forgot to write about, and then I have to go back and, and all that. So, yeah, it's a lot more than I thought it would be. So now I'm shooting for midsummer to be done that. And hopefully, you know, if all the planets align with that, uh, it'll get done. But I am still working on it. Thank you very much. Don Ecker, Jeff Ritzman, for joining David and me on the Paracast. Thank you, gentlemen. Yep. Thank you for having me. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.